today we're actually starting a, a new series. It's only going to be about four weeks long, and you heard Bernard share this morning that September is birthday month for Antioch Church. So I've been here for 12 years, and uh, my wife and I assumed senior leadership uh, responsibilities six years ago, six and a half now, and I know, wow, <laughs> it has gone by very, very fast. Uh, but three years ago, the last Sunday of September, we ended up going through what we just call uh, a name change that reflected an identity change. And not that our previous identity was bad or wrong, there were just some things that the Lord was adding to us, and we felt like the name Antioch Church reflected that new identity a little bit more better. And so uh, the next three weeks, we're, we're going to be engaging in something new in terms of our format. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking in terms of conversations. So we're calling this series Antioch Conversations. And one of the things that's going to be unique about this is that all of the quote-unquote uh, preaching or teaching or material is going to be transmitted by way of a conversation. Uh, something else that's going to be unique in the next few weeks is that we actually want to stir up a dialogue and um, not only here on the platform and not only, you know, from you to us, uh, but we would like to see there be deeper level conversations and spiritual conversations becoming the norm of the house. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that's so important and why that's so formative here in a few minutes. Uh, one of the ways that we can help to facilitate a conversation is we actually would like to facilitate some Q&A. And uh, that scares me to death because I have no idea what questions are going to come out of you guys. And one way to make sure that we uh, approach that well is that the next three weeks, we're going to throw up uh, an email address or some format for you to submit your questions. And there it is right there. Text or email your questions to questions at antioch.is. And uh, this will give us time to think through some of those questions because we don't want to just stand up here and go, man, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, we don't want to do that. And so we want to actually take your questions seriously. We, we won't, unfortunately, be able to answer all of those questions, but we'll be able to uh, select some of those questions and, uh, and address those on the last Sunday of the month, which, again, is Antioch celebration. So um, I think they turned the heater on now. <laughs> well, um, there, we, we, we basically sat down and we mapped out uh, a number of topics that we felt like fit with under uh, underneath the framework of what we're just calling, you know, Antioch's ecclesiology. And that's just a, a funky and a fancy word for saying, you know, some of the things that we believe to be important and true about the church. And so we've, we've framed out these topics and we're going to introduce these topics here in a minute. But before we get into that, I just say that to let you know why Jonathan is up here, because our topic of conversation today is on worship. Worship is a very important part of our ecclesiology. Worship, uh, it, it, uh, it strengthens and it structures and it guides and it forms uh, what we believe to be true about the church. And so we're going to be talking specifically about worship today, and that's why Jonathan Swindle is up here. And uh, by the way, Jonathan, we just love what you bring to the team, and we love what you bring to the house. And um, not only are you a worship leader, but you are also a theologian. You're a theological thinker, and, and, uh, and you just bring such an incredible depth to the team and the family. Um, but what I like to do is I'd like to just start off with some, you know, just some icebreaker questions. And this is going to be very much, you know, you know, conversation. I'm, I'm not interviewing you and you're not you're interviewing me. All right. Or, yeah, this is going to be conversation. So I just think, you know, we're entering into fall and I know that fall is your absolute favorite season of the year. Yes. Any other follies in here? Man, you're in good company. I'm a summer guy personally, but That's fine. what do you love about fall and what are you looking forward to? Well, there's a, a few things funny you ask. Uh, yesterday was a really important day in the history of our country. It is. It was the uh, the launch of college football season, or it might have been Thursday night. I don't yeah. remember, but yes. Yeah, so, so for all the sports junkies, I know I have one friend right back here, Darius, who's a sports junkie. Uh, this is the beginning of football season, and we are very soon approaching the beginning of basketball season, which is my personal favorite. So that that would be one thing. That's great. I personally am looking forward to uh, the, dude, the Blue Devils beating up on the Tar Heels this fall. I'm personally looking forward to that uh, in this fall season. 
Is that right? Is that in the vein yeah, of what we're talking gonna about? Yeah, it's going to be a great letdown, yeah. but yeah, I can't wait, yeah. Uh, I hear you're a big fan of pumpkin spice lattes, is, well, is that right? Well, you know, mostly it's the aura around pumpkin spice lattes, okay. like flannel shirts and boots, which you kind of beat me to today, but... I, I almost texted Jonathan, I said, whatever you do, don't wear a blue flannel shirt, and uh, I, I should have, because we kind of look a little funny up here. It's all good. It's yeah. unity. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's good, that's great. good alignment. I, I'm looking forward to Turkey Bowl. Um, Come on. And in uh, recruiting a, a killer team and, and exacting vengeance and victory over our enemies uh, from the past two years. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward that's to That's going to happen for sure. <laughs> Just don't get injured. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I love the fall, and I'm looking forward to all that the fall brings. Um, conversations, Antioch conversations. What are you looking forward to in the next four weeks that we have together? I am looking forward to a number of things. One, I think that conversations as a tool kind of open up things in a different way. We could essentially preach the same information that's going to come out today, but it's going to hit us and the body differently because of the format, which for some may be good and some may be bad, but I, I'm looking forward to the, the things that will be caught, the little things that will just kind of come out and uh, will end up being important truths, hopefully. Hopefully they are true. <laughs> looking forward to that as well. Looking forward to things being true and right. And uh, I'm also looking forward to the fourth week, which is our celebration. I mean, it, it's a time where as a body we celebrate uh, victory, we celebrate the past year, we celebrate the fruit that we've seen, and we also will talk about where we're going here. Pastor Jade's going to uh, give us a little foresight into the future of what he sees for Antioch Church and for us, because the church isn't a church without us, right? right. So that's going to be a really important day for us as the church, as the people, to see what, what our senior leader kind of sees in uh, the incoming, the upcoming steps for us as a body. So I'm really excited about week four. What about you? Um, you know, I think about, first of all, just the, the title of the series. I was driving up to the cabin uh, that the Williams so graciously let us utilize as a family. And I was listening to, everybody had fallen asleep. And I was listening to a podcast. And the format of the podcast was not the typical preaching podcast that I typically listen to. It was actually an interview style format of a podcast. And uh, if you recall, that's when I texted you and Dan. I said, what do you guys think about... Uh, for our September series, Antioch Conversations. And uh, I think that there is, within this generation, and with where we're at currently and culturally, I think that we're eager and we're hungry to engage in conversations, as opposed to just, just sitting back and listening to what uh, someone has to share with us didactically. I think that there is a hunger inside of us to engage in deeper level conversation. Um, in fact, I was just writing up to uh, Denver Seminary with Jordan yesterday, and um, <clears throat> just phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. And one of the things, is Jordan here? I don't know if Jordan's here. Um, one of the things Jordan mentioned with me is just this hunger and this yearning to um, have the relationships in his life go a little bit deeper and facilitating that with deeper level conversation. And I think about in the past, you know, we've been walking together. You've been officially on the team, you and Bonnie now for, it'll be a year on Celebration Sunday. But uh, we've been engaging in conversation now for about three, three years intensely. And uh, every time Jonathan and Bonnie would come visit, we'd stay up till about 2 or 3 a.m., particularly on Sunday, Saturday nights before Sunday morning service. Not the wisest use of our time, but I think we were just trying to extract everything out of those weekends. It was what we had. <laughs> it was what we had. And, um, you know, since you guys have moved here and since you guys have become a part of the family, uh, the conversations that you and I have engaged in have become so formative for me. They have literally changed and are changing my life. And so these are some of the things that led into uh, why we titled the series this and some of the things I'm hoping that uh, begin to uh, spawn out of this series that uh, we'll begin talking to one another on a deeper, a deeper level. <laughs> so um, some of our topics here, can you just introduce our topics sure. and maybe just give a little teaser Absolutely. for each of the topics of the next couple weeks? Yes, yeah, so... The thought behind each of the conversations, primarily the first three weeks, 
are when we were discussing what kind of things and what angle do we want to approach from was something that we often talk about in the office and and we call it ministry philosophy, which is essentially why we do the things we do and how we do those things is is determined by what our philosophy of ministry is. So for today, we're going to talk about what is, what do we believe to be true about worship? And not just worship in the sense of singing, but worship in the sense of everything that we do on Sunday mornings and, and thereafter as an outflow of what happens on Sunday mornings. So we're going to approach this from what do we believe to be true and what decisions have gone into why we do things or don't do certain things, and how we do those things. Week two, I believe, is going to be missions, and the same approach there will be ministry philosophy. So why do we take the approach with regards to missions that we do? Why do we have our teams go through such extensive training? What do we believe to be valuable about short-term mission trips as an investment into long-term kingdom works? So that'll be much of the approach uh, on the week that we talk about mission. And then when we talk about community, what do we believe to be true about the people of God and why it is important for the people of God to be around each other? If yes, the Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us individually, then why do we need each other? And the answer will come in a few weeks. Um, You know, in our time walking together, my ecclesiology is being shaped pretty profoundly by uh, some of the things that you've introduced me to, and and, and I'll talk about that here in a minute, but I'm just curious, what has shaped your journey in your understanding of the church, things that you believe to be important in the church? Uh, I consider you to be somewhat of an atypical, uh, atypical, like not typical worship leader, um, and I can explain why I believe that, but, uh, you know, you really, I'm a bit bring, weird. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you really bring a lot of richness. You're a very rooted man. Um, your understanding of the scriptures and some of the current and even ancient theologians is, is, is very, very dense and very broad. So what has shaped your ecclesiological journey over the years? Well, the short answer is I have a wonderful family. And I was raised in a pastor's home, an Assembly of God pastor's home. My grandfather on my mom's side was the district superintendent of New England for the Assemblies of God. So my roots are seriously AG. And um, of course, with any movement, with any denomination, there are pros and there are cons, and there are things that push us forward and things that hold us back. But I found that to be a tremendous springboard for me. I was in church. I'm, I was... In, uh, our church had an orchestra and a choir, like robes, swaying, the whole deal. Back when it, I mean, it was awesome when we had it. And so I was on the platform playing trumpet, playing drums, playing piano, or singing in the choir from a very, very young age. And, and I loved it primarily, not just because of music, but because of the community that it brought. So I have always had an affinity for going to church. I love going to church. I love being around the people of God, not just because it's a safe place and it's people who think like me, but because it's a place where life really is given and transmitted if we're open to it. And it's a place for us to grow, to be corrected, to have some of the things that are exposed. I tell you, the church and the home uh, are two wonderful things for exposing our flaws and for providing a safe place for us to grow. So I had a great uh, upbringing in the church and a wonderful family and still have a family where pretty much everyone in my family still follows the Lord and loves the Lord deeply. And I I am a bit of a a unique worship leader in that I don't sleep until noon. Um, I have a degree, my undergrad is in accounting, so that is pretty atypical. Let's, Let's use a friendly word here. Uh, I, I just, I love music and I'm good at music, but I, I don't always identify with a lot of, of worship leaders just because my mind, I feel like my mind works a little differently. I never stop asking why and how with everything. And, and it's something that sometimes drives me crazy and is a little bit uncontrollable, uh, but I try and channel it for good purposes. 
So I'm just so interested in the history of the church. I'm interested in why we do the things that we do. I'm interested why different denominations, churches look different. Why do some pre- preachers preach in certain denominations off to the side and the center, the center is a cross with a table and why in some churches is the music in the back and why? So I just can't stop myself from asking all of these questions. And for some people doing that kind of a thing might be dry or boring or whatever, but for me, it's very life-giving because I feel that the more that I understand about the practices that I engage in, the more fruit that I can see in my life, the more that I have to offer the Lord to work through. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I would say I've got a a little bit of a similar um, journey in terms of uh, I my my induction into the family of God was very much on one side of a spectrum, and if I were if I were to draw a line between uh, charismatic and evangelical, or even you know mainline fundamental, um, I would say that I was introduced to the family of God way over here in in Pentecostalism. Man, holy rollers when we'd have people running around the church, we'd have people giving you know tongues and interpretation of tongues almost on a weekly basis, and it was very much. Um, charismatic. That was in high school. And then when I went to ORU, very much ORU, word of faith, high word of faith. And then uh, just to give you an understanding of this, the the church that we worked in uh, right after I graduated from ORU, the pastor's wife was Kenneth Hagin's granddaughter. So we would change words to songs because they were not positive enough or they, they, they did not line up well enough with our faith. And so uh, one of the, our favorites is... Um, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. So there's a line in there that says, uh, though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. And we would, we would change it to say, though I'm strong and rich, all I have is yours. So, I mean, we're talking about way over here on the far end of, because it wasn't a positive confession. It didn't line, it didn't line up with the words. So, so I have found, and then when I came here to Colorado Springs, we served under Dutch sheets. And I, again, I would, put, I would put Dutch and Springs Harvest and Freedom Church way over here on, on a segment, on a tributary of the charismatic world that I didn't even know existed. And that is the apostolic and prophetic movement, spiritual warfare and intercessory prayer, deliverance. All of these things were really um, uh, un- unfamiliar waters for me. And Christy and I just felt like the Lord said, give yourself fully to this. And, and we're understanding some of, some of why the Lord has call, called us, not only in this family and the roots that this family come out of, but why he called us to give ourselves just totally to uh, the things within this movement. But I will say in the past year and a half, there have been some really significant things that, that uh, if we're going to use the word formative, that have formed our, our spirituality. They're forming our theology. They're just, I think the Lord is using, because he does this, he uses so many different tools to shape who we are individually and to shape who we are as a people. Uh, there were a number of situations that happened last year that actually caused me to really take a hard look at reevaluating uh, some of my hardline faith theology. And, um, and those situations didn't cause me to question my faith or lose my faith as much as they caused me to re-examine um, elements of God that I've never, ever heard about. Uh, things like suffering as a people, suffering as individuals, and, and what is the role of faith in suffering, and what is the character and the nature of God and his relationship with us, and, and all of these things have been new topics of exploration that if I were really honest, I kind of just ignored. And I just avoid it because no one really likes to talk about the reality of suffering and pain and grief and sorrow uh, in the life of faith. Uh, I think also, too, the, the Lord's Prayer this year uh, has been radical, has been absolutely radical. And if I were to sum all this up, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me personally, and, and I hope and I believe leading us as a family and as a people, he's, he's leading us. And here's why I say this. Uh, at the beginning of every year, we have a 21-day fast in January. And uh, so David and I were talking, this was probably November. And David said, hey, what do you feel like the Lord is saying to you about the 21-day fast? And I said, uh, you go first. And so we kind of did this like, you know, Holy Ghost draw. We were like, let's check and see whether or not we're really both hearing from God. 
And I had some things that were in my heart. I felt like we were supposed to go on a series into the Lord's Prayer, at least for the 21-day fast. I did not foresee it taking nine months. No one did except <laughs> the Holy Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> And, but David, he said, well, I feel like the Lord is just saying the focus of our fast should be teach us to pray, which now we know is what the disciples said to Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray, which was a precursor to him actually teaching them the Lord's prayer. So when he said that, I flipped out because I said, I feel like the Lord is telling us to teach on the Lord's prayer. And so here is this just one of many examples of how the Holy Spirit is leading us. The Lord's prayer to me, gave God an opportunity by, by sitting in a topic for nine months, gave God an opportunity to really take me and take us places I don't think that we would have intuitively gone to had we just done a nice little four, six, or even eight-week series. And so creating that amount of space uh, allowed the Lord to do a, a deeper work of formation uh, in my heart. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And it is... It's one of those uh, things where you get into it and you, you realize week by week how much more there is. So you kind of just, what, well, what we have done is kind of just kept pushing it out and saying, why rush it to get to something when this is what Jesus told the disciples when they asked him how to pray? It's probably worth our time to study, so why rush it? So we did, and I, I found myself having to, exactly that, to wrestle with things, to research things, to sit and think about things, and to sit in prayer about things that I normally would not have ever done. So the first message that I spoke in that series was on the transcendent nature of God, which is uh, nothing more than a massive subject, right? So when, when I'm studying and preparing and all of this for this message, I'm just going, transcendent is, I knew it was big, but it's so much even larger. And, and just getting into all of these things that, so when we read the Lord's Prayer before the series, each of us would probably have assumed certain things. We, we all have different propensities to think certain way according to our personality, our upbringing, our education, all of this. But now when we pray as a body, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are drawing on a well of, of revelation and information. When we say our father, I mean, guys, we spent like five weeks on our father. We as a body learned a lot and, and not just learned a lot, but hopefully over the course of time, learned in our hearts a lot about the nature of our father. So when, when we open that together and we go, our father who art in heaven, there is so much more that is happening in our community now than there would have been a year ago before we took time to dive into that. So I, I'm very grateful for that. Especially when we say, give us this day. I will never, ever look at that uh, the same again. So, you know, in addition to some of the situations in life that took place last year and also, um, you know, just the prayer and the scriptures itself, I, I will say that you have been very instrumental in my formation, in my journey, and my understanding of the role and the nature of the church and all of the critical pillars within that by some of the resources that you have um, introduced me to and reintroduced me to. I'm finding that some of the guys I'm reading now are guys that were actually assigned when I was in seminary that I didn't take quite as seriously. And so um, I, I'm trusting that there was some base of knowledge that's kind of hidden in there that I can build off of. But um, I'd actually like to read something here that I think would, would help us uh, maybe transition the conversation and also take the conversation deeper. Uh, we were in Alabama and uh, we were talking about just different expressions of church and different expressions of worship. And I remember uh, 12 years ago when I first came here, our previous executive pastor, Chris Jackson, asked me a question. And he said, Jade, if, if you could write your own script and if you could just shape and form uh, any kind of church, what, what would it look like? What, what kind of expression would that have? And just out of my heart, I said, Chris, I would like to take the best of all of the streams and combine them into one. And that is, that's always been my heart but never really had the thinking or never had the language for that. And when we were coming back from our ministry trip to the ramp in Alabama in March, you shared a blog with me from Brian Zond. And uh, I'm reading through this book that you have just given to me and just finished it last night, actually. And so very, very excited to share this. This is, after, this is, this is in chapter two, and I'm not going to give the entire context, but uh, I'm just going to read this because I think that this is really good for 
explaining where I'm at. It says, prior to 2004, I was a poverty-stricken Christian, and I didn't even know it. My poverty was theological, and it was the sad consequence of my arrogant sectarianism. By restricting my Christianity to the narrow confines of modern charismatic evangelicalism, I suffered from a self-inflicted theological poverty. I needed the riches of the whole church. I needed to be able to draw upon the broad spectrum of Christian thinkers and theologians, mystics and writers. I needed to become eclectic in my approach to Christianity. A Christianity that is sufficiently broad and eclectic liberates us from an arrogant and impoverished sectarianism. In my youthful arrogance, the word that I really want to use is in my youthful stupidity, I effectively defined and limited Christianity to my kind of Christianity, a charismatic-flavored evangelicalism. As far as I was concerned, most Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, and mainline Protestants needed to get saved, which is to say they needed to become my style of Christian. You ever, you ever bear witness with that? No, not, not me personally, but I know people like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought Catholics belonged to the whore of Babylon and mainliners were all liberal goats. <laughs> how egotistical and how stupid. I'm ashamed of all that now. I have repented, which means I've called my former attitude sinful and I've changed my mind. I simply don't think that way anymore. Stop me anytime if you want to break any of these down. Today, my theological reading is pretty evenly divided between Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, Protestant, and Evangelical writers. I want to help all kinds of people discover, discover a vibrant personal faith in the living Christ. But I feel no need to convert my Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters to a Protestant version of Christianity. From my vantage point, I've come to think that Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, Protestant, and Evangelical expressions of Christianity generally have the same amount of truth. It just depends on what areas of truth you want to focus on. Yes, I actually believe this. I honestly don't think evangelicalism has a greater claim to Christian truth than Catholicism. It's true I'm not entirely comfortable with the Catholic view of Mary and the practice of a male-only celibate priesthood, but neither am I comfortable with the Protestant view of sola scriptura and the emphasis on radical individualism. Another way of saying it might be like this, we need the whole body of Christ to properly form the body of Christ. Can you just... I'm going to read some more here, but I want you to just speak yeah. into this Catholic and oh, this man. sola scriptura and this needing the whole oh. body. Do you want to just say anything to yes. that? Yes. Well, okay. So one thing, and I actually thought about this in, in our prayer time before service. So I'm going to read two verses from Romans chapter 12, when Paul says, therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasant, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And here is the key. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one thing that when I read that caught me was he said, I have repented. I have changed my mind. And I think sometimes in, in our area, our stream of the body, there is an underemphasis on the power that our minds have. Now, that's not some new age thing that I'm, I'm promoting at all. This is Paul in the book of Romans, perhaps the most theological book in the whole Bible. And I think we underestimate sometimes that for transformation to happen in our lives, our core beliefs have to change. So seeing the story of the apostle Paul previously saw, so he has all these beliefs and presuppositions as a well-studied student of the Torah, right? He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he has sinned not according to the law. And he has this radical encounter with Jesus. And what changes? His mind changes. His perspective changes. When the scales, so physically there were scales inflicted on his eyes. And when they fell off, his perspective was different. His mind had changed. And I think that that is what is necessary for us as believers is to willingly with open hands submit even the core beliefs to the Lord. To submit them to the Lord and say, Lord, sift these things according to your truth and according to your Holy Spirit and the body of Christ, which wasn't formed yesterday. It was formed over 2,000 years ago. And at another place in scripture that we may or may not get to in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the gospel that he inherited. 
that, that he didn't, like, we don't have to come up with this thing new every generation. That is, a, is, is not only a waste of time, but it's dangerous. We're entrusting our way of seeing things, I think, a little too much. So to directly hit on that, I, I think we need the whole body of Christ, not in that we have to become like all of the body of Christ, but we need to learn to see the value in all of the streams of the body of Christ. I, I don't want us to get out of order here, but one of the things that we want to talk about is these tensions that exist within worship, and some of our conversation is already sprinkling that direction, so I'm going to go ahead and just pull it up now, if that's okay. It is a conversation. It is. All right. <laughs> but one, one of the things that we've been talking about here the past few weeks is this idea of there are tensions that exist within the church, there are tense, tension, tensions that exist within truth, and there are tensions that exist within worship. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna rattle off some of these key tensions, and I want to I want to drill down on on this macro versus micro, and then I want to get back to my my story. All right. Um, but here's one tension: it's this expressive versus formative. What what is worship? Is it all just expression and us kind of doing what we want to do, or is there an element of worship that is forming us individually and as a people? Hopefully, we'll get to that. Um, here's another tension: the initiator versus responder. Uh, that's attention in worship, and I talked a little bit about that in our ministry crew training today. And, uh, but here's, here's the one that I really want to hone in on, and that is the micro-narrative versus the macro-narrative tension. And let me just explain that here real quick, and you jump in if there's anything that I'm missing. Um, I was driving to church two weeks ago, and as I was driving, uh, I felt like the Lord just spoke to me on the road, coming over the hill of Awesome Bluffs. And this is what I felt like the Lord said. Son, you don't have to get it all done today. You don't have to get it all done today. Take the pressure off. And I call this the micro-narrative. Now, I'm gonna do my best to show the strengths and the weaknesses. I think that there is an incredible strength of being a prophetically oriented people. And that strength is we are very much dialed into what I'm gonna call the micro-narrative. What is the story that God is saying to us right now in this moment? What is the thing that he is speaking individually and personally to every single one of us? That is one of the strengths of our prophetic stream. It's one of the strengths of the prophetic dynamic and dimension of who God is. God is very personal and he's very on time. He's very much in the now. What that has formed into me uh, inadvertently, I didn't even know this was happening, but it had put a pressure on me. And I didn't realize it until the Lord said, take the pressure off. And the pressure was, particularly in the role that I facilitate is, I have to get it right and I have to hear exactly and everything that God is saying and doing right now for this two hour space of time or else, and you guys can say this with me, I'm going to miss, miss it. it. I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss the micro narrative of what God is doing right now. I'm gonna miss the moment. Someone may not get healed if I don't hear or someone may not get delivered if we don't do things just right or God may not show up in the right way if I miss the micro narrative. And I just felt like God just liberated me and he said, son, 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 we're in this for a very long time. And if we use the family analogy in raising and training children, I, I, I'm coming to this stark reality. And that is, there are some things that for the past seven years, I have been trying to train my son to understand. Seven years. And he has not quite yet got them yet. This whole idea of, hey, when I tell you or ask you to do something, what I say is more important than what you're doing. Like, yeah, we're still there. And um, he did tell me when I saw him this morning, though, that he's trying to change. He told me that, yeah. So, you know, how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we fit this into this macro narrative? So if I, I explain the micro narrative, why don't you explain the macro narrative and then let's talk about the tension. All right, so the macro narrative would be the acknowledgement of we are a part of God's story and we have, as Paul says, been engrafted in. That, that we are not living our life, our lives, plural, and engrafting God into our story at, an, at a particular time in the journey, then everything radically changes. That does happen, but that is all within 
the macro narrative that starts in Genesis 1 and will culminate, but really never culminate in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Which is kind of what we talked about last week. So the macro narrative is realizing that God is, as we kind of quickly passed over, God is the initiator. He has engrafted us into his story that he is forming one body. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, one of the climaxes in all of scripture. And Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Lord, make them one as we are one. So we realize that God is not forming millions and millions of individual Christians to have personal relationships with them, privatized religion, privatized Christianity. God does have personal relationships with each and every one of us to serve the purpose of the whole, which is ruling and reigning with him as a body, as a kingdom. The people of the kingdom serve the kingdom. Who serves the king? Which serves the king. And that doesn't at all in any way discount God's love or nearness to us. It provides value and perspective to why God chooses to be near to us and close to us and speak directly to us. So that would be the macro narrative of taking taking it as a whole. And one Sunday is a 24-hour meaningful period over a thousands of years long journey. So, so what I hear you saying, or maybe I can just be an antagonist here. You mean to tell me things like, um, I, I don't know, like the Lord's table or things like uh, praying the Lord's prayer, which the early church had done 2,000 years ago. In fact, I heard a podcast just the other day that said before the scriptures were written, the early church in the book of Acts did not have the written scriptures. And so something that we have now built as the centerpiece of our corporate gathering, we have built the kerygma, the preaching of the word, and the, uh, the explication of the word. We have made that the centerpiece. But in the early church, that wasn't really quite the centerpiece because they didn't have the written scriptures, at least the New Testament portions of that. What I heard was that uh, they could not even imagine having a gathering that did not include one of two things, the table of the Lord and the Lord's Prayer. So you mean to tell me that things like written prayers and things like liturgical prayers, and I'd love for you to just talk with me a little bit about that, that they are all part of shaping the macro narrative or they're a part of forming or they're a part of, how would you explain those things? Yes, absolutely. And before I jump right into that, I do want to make a, a disclaimer that we are bodies, mind, body, spirit, we are integrated, meaning that what we do with our body affects our mind and affects our spirit and vice versa for all three things. So just focusing on any one of these three things does not guarantee spiritual transformation or Christ-likeness, which includes our spirit. If we only focus on the spirit, as we just read in, in Romans 12, then there are going to be things that our mind believes that we can't see, filters we're looking through that we don't even know we have. And the reason I say this is because it's not to discount any one of the three or to elevate any one of the three. It's to for us to come to the realization that we are being formed as whole human being entities, okay? For all the ORU grads and, and current students out there, this is the whole body, mind, and spirit thing, right? So back to your question directly, we believe as charismatic people that the Holy Spirit is in our midst and that he is actively moving and we're not going anywhere from that. We're not moving anywhere from that. We're, there is no message at the end of this saying, hey, we're becoming Catholic. That's not happening, okay? We're, we're just providing greater Sur perspective. Surprise, conversations. Yeah, surprise. Happy birthday, Antioch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... So for any of you that are getting real nervous, we're, we're not discounting or pushing any of that to the side. We are coming to the realization that there is a value that is that we can choose to inherit as the people of God. And what that is, is the thousands and thousands of people who have come before us from the beginning of time to now, who have spent time in prayer, who have spent time in study, and who have spent time face-to-face, quote-unquote, not in the literal sense, but face-to-face -face with the Holy Spirit, for years and decades and centuries 
people, like we didn't create this faith up, as I said a minute ago, we received it from those who had gone before us. So there is a value in building upon what they, as you say sometimes, have purchased in the spirit and purchased with their minds. And we believe that sometimes it has been said better before than we could say in the moment on our own. And so why not do like what we do with the Lord's Prayer? Why not pray with all of our heart and all of our conviction, pray the Lord's Prayer, which is the perfect prayer that Jesus chose to give us, as opposed to just purposefully winging it because we can. That doesn't mean that it is wrong to wing it. I'm not saying that, and I I think that we're going to dialogue on that here. But there is a value in what we have inherited as the body of Christ. And I think for too long, we may have overlooked that inheritance as something that's dry or dead or unnecessary. Well, two, two thoughts real quick as you share that, just off the cuff. I think number one, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And I was just meditating on this even just last night. And I found myself praying this prayer. I said, Lord, I, I think that I've been pretty good, pretty good at loving you with all of my heart. I, I, th- I think for the most part. And I think that I'm really good at loving you with my soul. My emotions are engaged, I, I, you know. And I'm pretty good at loving you with my strength. You know, I'm, I'm loving you with the work that I do, the work of my hands throughout the week, and even just being a little bit more energized physically in the terms of, you know, the, the song part of worship. But I found myself praying this, Lord, help me to worship you with my mind. Because I'm not really sure that I do that well. I don't do that intentionally. I don't do that as, it's not my go-to. And I know that for some people, whether it be personality or whether it be their experience or whether it be their understanding, they're able to engage with that element of worship with a greater understanding. And I think this is one of the premises that we're trying to shape too is, and it's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation, is to the degree that we understand these things, we can engage with them more consciously, more intentionally. And to the degree that we engage with them, they form us and they shape us as a people. So I know that we're hitting just a ton of things, but you know, you just, one of the things you said there just reminded me that, you know, part of what we're inheriting is we are inheriting people who have loved God deeply with their minds, and I need them. I need to draw from them. You all, you also said something that is not written here in terms of the things that we wanted to, to touch in our tension, but there is, I think, a tension of uh, spontaneous and planned. And um, how many of you guys have ever felt that that tension of, and if we're not careful, I think being with, within this prophetic orientation, and I think even just being people who pride themselves on the, the charismatic and the spiritual dimensions of Christ, I think we can almost over-elevate what we would call spontaneous, and almost making spontaneous the bullseye, and spontaneous the goal, if it happens now and in the moment, then that is obviously the spirit. Let's talk just for, for a couple minutes on the spontaneous versus structured or planned tension? Well, I would say right off the bat, I think they have, they both have legitimate values and legitimate strengths. And that discounting one or the other is an automatic deduction for us. (laughs) I think that both serve a purpose. And so I think in our stream, the tendency is to overvalue the spontaneous over the structure. And so I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is what happens when we are in a moment, and whether it's preaching, whether it's giving a prophetic word, or whether it's in song, or any number of other elements of the service, when, when we go with the spontaneous, okay, what can be happening is in that moment, we are resting the trajectory of what is happening in the moment on whoever the leader is at that moment, on their ability to discern the direction of the spirit and to move on. And I think sometimes that is a pro. Sometimes the Lord is trying to break in and trying to do something specific that for whatever reason, was not planned for, probably because he's like God. So that's probably why we didn't plan for it, right? And, and at Antioch, we welcome that. 
what that also means is that if the goal is being spontaneous, then we are putting ourselves in a position to rest the trajectory of the service instead of on a week of prayer and preparation on a moment of discernment. So the tension is, if I go with the spontaneous, it doesn't make it wrong, it just makes it a little more risky, right? On one person's ability to discern what the Lord is doing in a moment versus a whole week of hopefully diligent prayer, preparation, and study going on amongst those who prepare the services. So it's, it's not that one has value over the other, it's that they must supplement each other. And I think too often we, we want to, and probably even subconsciously, elevate the spontaneous because we believe that when we go with the spontaneous, that it must be God. And oftentimes it is God. And sometimes it's not, and he chooses to use it anyway, because once again, he's God, right? And then sometimes, I'm sure we've all been in services where it's not, and it's pretty obvious to everyone. I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm finding that exploring some of the, just the rich gems and some of the rich treasures of people that have gone before us, that the Holy Spirit has not stopped breathing on those things. The Holy Spirit has not stopped breathing on great is thy faithfulness. And the Holy Spirit has not stopped breathing on all creatures of our God and King. He's not stopped breathing on the Lord's prayer. And I don't think there's anything in the nature of God that says, oh, this thing has been prayed uh, a thousand or a million or just how many times. And so obviously the Spirit is not moving on that anymore. And so I just, I think that's interesting. That'd be a really great point of conversation to tease out a little bit further in the future. A um, couple of things here, because man, time is going so fast up here. Uh, I want to talk about one other quick tension in worship, and that is this idea of who initiates worship. Are we the initiator or is God the initiator? And if God's the initiator, we're the responder. But if we're the initiator, God's the responder. And so, and I think we can tie this into table talk and the Lord's table, and this is something that, um, and then I'd like to close out with reading the rest of my story, but also with hitting just a couple of quick elements here. And so I think we can do this very, very quickly. We can. Um, this idea of who initiates and who responds. Uh, this morning, I read a quote from a guy named Eugene Peterson to the ministry crew. And the idea behind this quote very simply was this, that God is the one who hosts us in worship. Now, I know that at first glance, we might hear that and go, whoa, 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 I don't really know if I agree with that. God is the one who hosts us. He's the one who invites us into worship of him for a lot of reasons, all of which we can't go into now. God invites us to worship him, not because he needs it, because he knows that we need it. God invites us to worship him. There are things that I invite my children into, not because I need them but because I know it's putting something inside of them. For example, anytime my kids get a bag of chips, I always get the first tenth. I call it my snack tax, all right? Anytime they get a piece of candy or an ice cream, I take the first bite, not because I need it, all right? Because it's doing something deep inside of them. It is, it is changing them. Is it is good. working the goodness of the kingdom in their lives. They're gonna be generous. They're gonna be prosperous in their lives. They don't own I'm, anything. They steward oh, come things. On, come somebody. on, somebody. I, I need some help up in here. Hey. Now, so this thing called worship, and I love the analogy here. If I were to invite any one of you, if I were to invite you to my home, you don't have to beg for my attention. Right? Because I have prepared for you to come to my house. I have made preparation. I have planned for it. I have designated time. And I am ready to give you my attention in that moment because I am hosting you and you're my guest or you're my friend or you're my family. I think inadvertently, again, and a lot of these things are inadvertently happening to us. But somewhere along the lines, I developed this idea and I think it goes into this pressure I put on myself that I have to do the right things in the context of worship or else me as the host will not attract God as the guest to come to my table. Anybody ever felt like that before? Like if I don't, if we don't have the song, if, it, if the band doesn't sing the right songs and uh, if, if, if everything's just not perfect uh, musically and instrumentally and if the lead singer didn't fast and pray and if I didn't come and if I didn't, you know, clap on beat or if I didn't deal with all the sin in my heart, then I, I'm, I'm creating this table for God and he's not gonna come. 
But how does that change if God is the host who has already laid out a table for us as we talked about today, who is already waiting for us and inviting for us to come? How does that change us as a people? I need a drink. Well, so one thing I thought of when you started that whole riff was if you invite me over, we have an appointment. And I think sometimes we underestimate that Sunday mornings happen every week. And Sunday mornings are not the only time that I see Pastor Jade or that I meet with God or that I see many of you. And it's easy to discount appointments because they're like always happening, right? We come to church weekly. But so if you invite me to your house, we have an appointment where we, we are both coming with expectations. And, and most of those expectations are um, about our interaction. And I think some of the differences right off the bat would be if, if you're inviting me over, I can ask you for some things, but you probably didn't invite me over to just be a resource. So that would be one thing, although I know him personally and he has never minded being a resource for things, whether it be information, camping gear, etc. right? That's never been an issue, that's never been a problem, but that's also never been the purpose in 99% of our interactions. That would be one thing. Two, I think what happens over the course of years of interactions at your house of you inviting me over there, and I'm just, every analogy breaks down at some point, but I'm going to keep going with this one until it breaks down, okay, is that not only do I get to know you better up here, what happens over a period of time is that your heart is now understood by my heart and my heart is, your heart understands my heart. That there is a transaction on a mind level but also on a heart level. And I think that when we come into the presence of God, when we are invited to the Lord's table, that I think what he's after most is he knows what's best for us as humanity is when we learn to carry his heart. That the number one thing that he is after is, yes, our time, yes, our discipline and our devotion and us doing the right things. But ultimately, I think it's because he wants us to learn to carry his heart. And, and over time, your heart has shaped my life. And I'm trusting. It has. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that could have been really awkward. That would have been really awful. Yeah. That would have been awful. I mean, just put myself out there and then. You know, I just had this weird thought too, and that is, um, you know, when we show up at someone's home, it doesn't matter what happened in the car. It doesn't matter if we got into an argument. It doesn't matter if everything's breaking down. They have created an environment to, to and, and all we have to do is engage with that environment and with the invitation that is at hand. We don't earn that by coming in there just right. And I think obviously that that translates here as well. Quick thought, I think the most meaningful appointments at people's houses, keeping the analogy going, are also not when we have a car breakdown or a fight in the car or whatever, and we leave those things in the car, and then mm. we pick them up when we get back in the car. But when when you're going to a trusted friend's oh, house- Oh, I love it when I have to counsel you guys. Yeah, bring it know, on, right? man. I love it. But when you can bring those things into the environment, and, and now to bring it into church- analogy, when we bring our lives in here, as opposed to leaving them at the door, what happens is we can find healing, we can find peace, and we find perspective. So good. And, and I have often heard it said, like, leave your baggage at the door or leave the work week at the door. Well, one, that's impossible. Okay, I don't know about you. I can't just shut half of my mind off. It doesn't work that way. But also, I don't think that's God's design. If, like we talked about last Sunday, if his design is for us to be the fullness of what a human being was called and designed to be, then I need to bring my stuff into his presence and allow him to provide perspective and healing and all of the things that he does that don't happen when I leave those things at the door. Thank you, Everett. There are so many elements that happen in our service. And unfortunately, this conversation has got to come to a close. It's, um, 
offering, Lord's table, corporate prayer, corporate readings, call to worship. Now we're, you know, where we're beginning uh, our call to worship with an opening psalm. We're creating more breathing space where we're, we, we, we sit in stillness and silence. Obviously we have singing. There's a philosophy of why we sing, what we sing, when we sing, what we sing. Uh, there's special services. Last year we introduced our Good Friday service, our Resurrection Sunday, Palm Sunday, Holy Week. Uh, this year we're introducing Advent and putting a more focus on Advent. Um, maybe we should just introduce some of these elements and just talk about them as the journey continues. Sure. Yeah, you think so? You want, you want to take, you want to take, just take, take one, pick your favorite I'm gonna one. Take, I'm going to take one that, I'm, I have a, a quote here, a little statement that actually encompasses two. So we talked about give us the stay just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it may have been longer than that. I don't know. Time flies when you're having fun in the Lord's Prayer. But we talked about dependence and dependence training, right? If you remember that message, um, when we bring our offerings, one of the things that we are doing by, by bringing our offerings to the front is we are taking what the world tells us we need to survive and we're laying it at the altar of the Lord. And when we take communion, we are picking up what the Lord says that we need for life and survival, which the world would look at as meaningless, right? So everything that we're doing in the services is shaping us and forming us, even if we don't recognize it. We bring our offering, we lay it at the feet of the altar, and we're saying, God, we are not entrusting our well-being to this money. We're entrusting it to you. And when we take communion, we're saying, I don't find life in the things that this world has to offer me. I find life in what Jesus said would give me life. And that is why we do, those are just two of the elements. So there you go. You're trying to pull me into the expressive versus formative tension. You're trying to pull us into that. You know, I think one thing that I want to communicate that we just think about, that we have this frame of reference, and very simply is everything that we do in terms of our, our worship li limited to the corporate gathering. I know that we worship God in all of life. We worship God holistically, vocationally, but I'm, I'm, I'm relegating this to what we do on a Sunday morning as a people. Every one of these things are not just expressions and again, I'd, I'd almost like to propose that when we see these things primarily or even solely as expression, we then again become the initiator. I am the one who becomes the initiator of my giving. I am the one who initiates the table and I'm inviting the Lord to it. I'm the initiator of prayer. And I think this is where, if we're not careful, some of the emphasis on spontaneous, we can, we can put an emphasis on us as the, as, as the initiator of that expression. Um, you know, the past few weeks, we've been uh, experimenting with the idea of beginning our time of singing in worship. We've, we've been experimenting with beginning with a psalm and beginning with a just a heartfelt, slow, thoughtful, reflective prayer, as opposed to, um, come on, everybody, let's get excited, and almost like real pep rally-ish, which puts kind of the emphasis on the expression of what we do, as opposed to when we as a people come before the Lord and we gather around the table of the Lord in the presence of God, he is at work and he is shaping and transforming and forming our lives. So everything that we do, from our corporate prayer to our corporate readings to our creeds, all of those things are shaping us. And in three, in two weeks, we're gonna talk about the power of rootedness and how those two things connect. All right, let me finish my story here and then I'm gonna pray and we'll be done. <laughs> this literally will take about 90 seconds. Over the past decade, I have learned to worship with my Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, and mainline brothers and sisters. I found it beautiful and deeply rewarding. If my circumstances were different, I could imagine myself belonging to any one of these branches of Christianity. As it is, I'm content with being an eclectic Christian or perhaps an eclectic sacramental evangelical. I found that within the wide orthodoxy defined by the historic Christian creeds, there is room for a lot of different expressions of our shared faith. As I glance around my writing table, I see 12 books on St. Francis of Assisi. I see an Orthodox icon, an Anglican prayer book, and a volume of Karl Barth's dogmatics. I have no intention of surrendering any of these to the petulant sectarians who want to police such things. As Thomas Merton stated, if I can unite in myself the thought 
and the devotion of Eastern and Western Christendom, the Greek and the Latin fathers, the Russian with the Spanish mystics. I can prepare in myself the reunion of divided Christians. If we want to bring together what is divided, we cannot do so by imposing one division upon the other. If we do this, the union is not Christian. It is political and it is doomed to further conflict. We must contain all the divided worlds in ourselves and transcend them in Christ. When I was converted from sectarian to eclectic, I obtained a passport that allowed me to travel freely throughout the whole body of Christ. I love that language. In my theological travels, I have discovered a Christianity that has both historical depth and ecumenical width. Now, I cannot imagine not being able to access all the great contributors to contemporary Christian thought, orthodox thinkers like Callistos Ware and David Bentley Hart, Catholic thinkers like Richard Rohr and William Cavanaugh, Anglican thinkers like Rowan Williams and N.T. Wright, mainline thinkers like Walter Brueggemann and Eugene Peterson. Without them, my Christianity would be horribly impoverished. After my book, Unconditional, was published in 2010, a book on the centrality of forgiveness in the Christian faith, I began to receive a much wider range of speaking invitations. I spoke at the Monastery of Benedictine Nuns. I spoke to a group of progressive mainline pastors. I spoke at one of the largest Lutheran churches in America. I participated in a panel discussion with Catholic intellectuals in Lisbon. But not only did I speak in these different settings, I made friends among them. I was discovering how much I really like the whole body of Christ. I have no interest in trying to convert my friends from one expression of Christianity to another. Do I think the Benedictine nuns should become Protestants? Do I think the Orthodox priests that I've come to know and love should become Pentecostals? Do I think my pastor friends among the progressive mainline Protestants should become conservative evangelicals? Of course not. We need Benedictine nuns. We need Orthodox priests. We need mainline ministers. And we may even need a few eclectic sacramental evangelical pastors or whatever it is I am. Guys, thanks so much for this conversation. 